You're listening to a message from Lanesville Christian Church. For more information about Lanesville Christian Church, please visit lanesvillechristian.church. A um, couple things to start out with. One is I, I just heard that um, my, my son, uh, Atticus and Olivia, they, they're in Rwanda, and he had a chance to speak at church this morning, and uh, so that happened there. Um, big thing I want to talk about is the uh, revival going on in Asbury. I'm assuming that most everybody's heard about this now. And um, we've had, Wednesday night, we had a group of people leave here to, to go there and, and experience it for, the, for themselves. Um, understand it began with a very mundane sermon and mundane worship service. So there's hope for us, guys. I mean, <laughs> it could happen here. And that just tells me, it's a God thing. It's a God thing, not a man thing. The Asbury Revival is spreading. The revival at Asbury has now spread to Lee University, Tennessee, and Cedar, Cedarville University in Ohio. And then I got a list this morning, um, Jackson, Georgia High School, Ohio Christian University, Bethel in Austin, Texas, Park Hill, Missouri, Indiana Wesleyan University, the Gate, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Kingsway in Birmingham, Alabama, Kingdom Life, Waterville, Maine, Israel, Uganda, University of Kentucky, uh, Eastern Kentucky, Kentucky Christian University, uh, Christ for the Nations in, in Dallas, Texas. Um, God is on the move. <laughs> and we need that. Why am I crying? Um, it began, this is what I, what I read, is it began with Repentance. Repentance among young people uh, is the chief hallmark of this revival. There are healings and there's other works of the Holy Spirit, but the focus remains on repentance. People are repenting. Um, I saw the the student body president. She said that um, her freshman year at Asbury was marked by COVID, where, you know, get away from everybody, get away from everybody. And now revival is breaking out, and everybody's coming together. Um, and she said it's just a beautiful thing. Uh, com- you know, the, her last year at Asbury versus her first year at Asbury. Um, and, and, uh, and she said you contrast this with what's going on in other schools around our nation, school shootings. And here God is moving. We need more of this. Um, what, what you can do, you can pray for how God wants to use you. God's not wanting a copycat. We can't copycat this. We can't, we can't make this happen here. But we can pray that it happens here. Uh, just get down on your face and seek God. Spend time in his presence. Stay unified. Let God lead. Encourage everyone to rise up in their place in the body of Christ. Get prepared for God to do a great thing. Focus on Jesus and allow the Spirit to do the work. Pray, pray, pray. I just wanted to begin with that. Um, And I'm praying revival breaks out all across our nation. All right, so enough of that. Let me get into my mundane sermon here. Um, Matthew 26, verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
we, the past several weeks, we've been in Matthew 20, chapter 26. We, the, the disciples were preparing for Passover. We spent time talking about Passover. We had the Lord's Supper. We went through what happened that last night in the upper room um, when Jesus would wash the disciples' feet. Uh, all these things going on. It says in John 18, verse 4, that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he knows everything that's going to happen on this night, this very specific night. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. And last week, we, 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 we started at verse 31. When, when Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will, will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replied, even if everybody else falls away, I never will. Peter says, Lord, you can count on me. And, and what we talked about last week, Jesus says, yeah, I can count how many times you're going to deny me. That's what I can count. Um, and, and Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. I just I want to remind you of where we were last week. This, this is going to play into this week. Uh, verse 36, then, this is new. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I, go, while I go over there and pray. And my question for us right now is, what happened that night in Gethsemane? We talked about what happened in the upper room. Now we go to a new loca location, Gethsemane. What happened there? Verse 37, he took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him. So it had been James and John. And then it says, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it's possible, may, may this cup be taken, taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Let's take some time right now just to... Notice the sorrow that happened that night. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. First things we have to acknowledge is Jesus, he doesn't appear to, to have the same resolve that he did when he entered Jerusalem. The, the confidence, the resolve that you know, we, we saw when he went to Jerusalem to die. Here we see Jesus in great sorrow, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's trembling. He's in dis distress. He's troubled. He, he's, he's falling with his face to the ground in anguish, sweating drops of blood. He set out resolutely for Jerusalem. Where the Pharisees wanted to kill him. He, where, where the disciples begged him, don't, don't go there, don't go there. He, he was he's resolute. But here he declares, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow. And I, and I would ask, what's going on? What's going on here? And I think part of the problem is that Jesus knows too much. He's fully human. So he experiences everything we experience, fatigue, pain, temptation. He experiences all that. But he's fully God as well. 
in, in John 18, once again, it's Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. He, he knew Judas would betray him. He knew Peter would deny him. And he knew he would be arrested that, that night and scourged that night and flogged and drugged through the city and nailed to a cross. He knew all these things. And I wonder if Jesus, who knew all things, who knew what everybody else would do, he didn't know what he would do. He didn't know what he would do that night. Would he be able to stay the course? And, and, and what we see here in the garden is he's fighting for the success of his death. Not that he would be overcome by death, but that he would overcome. In verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. So now I want to bring your attention to the cup. This, this cup, what, what, what's this? A couple of weeks ago, we, 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 when we were uh, celebrating the, the Last Supper, and there was four cups up here, the, the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of, 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 of redemption, and the cup of restoration. And here Jesus is praying, take this cup away from me. Lord, if, if possible, take this cup from me. And what's this cup? This isn't one of the cups that was on the table. This would be the cup of wrath that's spoken about in Revelation 14 and 15 and 16. It's spoken of in, in Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. It's spoken of in Jeremiah 25. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This cup is reserved for all who sin against God. This cup of judgment that God forces the wicked to drink. And the Bible tells us that Jesus bore the wrath of God that night. Jesus drank this cup so we would not have to. He became a curse on the tree, is what it says in Galatians chapter 3. He was smitten by God and afflicted for, for our sins, is what it says in Isaiah 53. He bore our sins in his body, is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He died for the ungodly, is what it says in Romans 5, verse 6. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He drank the cup so that we could become the righteousness of God. The cup of God's divine wrath, the cup that's meant for you and I, Jesus steps in and says, I will drink this cup. In short, Jesus was grieved because he knew that all the guilt of all the sin, of all the redeemed, of all time would be put on him. And that he would bear the full brunt of divine wrath for you and me. So we notice the sorrow going on that night. We notice the cup that he begged the Lord to take away from him. I want us to, to think about the possibilities that night. He says, my father, if possible, may this cup be taken from me. What are the possibilities? What are the possibilities? Maybe someone else could die for our sins. Maybe if, if Gandhi's not busy or, you know, Muhammad's not busy, maybe they could step in. Maybe they could, but, but no, they, they didn't do that, no. Maybe God could figure out another way to redeem man. You know, maybe he could just look the other way. Maybe he could lower his standard. But God didn't do that. Maybe Jesus could just say no to the will of God. And just say, they're not worth it, God. They're not worth it. Let's 
let's do something different. If possible, but it's not. It's not possible. It's so offensive when people think there's, there's other ways to, to heaven, that, that Jesus isn't the only way, there, that, uh, you know, that, that God is a loving God and all these. No, it's not possible. It's, it's such an insult to God to think that you can get to heaven your own way based on your goodness, based on what you think. This is the only way. And so I look at this passage, I see the incredible love of Jesus Christ for, for you and for me. And the terrible judgment that awaits us if we reject Jesus Christ. One more thing to notice in the garden is Jesus' full surrender. Thy will be done. All of his human emotions had to be consciously and deliberately surrendered to the will of God. And we are called to be Christ-like. And I would ask you, can you do that? Can you do what he just did? Jesus says, I always do the things that please him in John chapter 8, verse 29. He says, he says in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. He, he says in John chapter 5, I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. And I would ask you once again, we are, Christ, we are, we are Christians. Can we do that? Can we fully surrender to the will of God? And say, thy will be done. Not my will, but your will be done, Lord. So, so, so Jesus' prayer in the garden is a prayer of submission. Not a, not a request for the cup to pass away, but, but a request that God would empower him for his will to be done. And the disciples slept through it all. They couldn't stay awake. Jesus had to ask them three times to wake up. Jesus didn't want to be in that garden alone. He didn't want to be by himself. His, his will for the disciples was to, to pray. But what the disciples did, they, they slept. Praying can be hard. Sometimes, sometimes it's hard to pray. Sometimes it's easy to pray. I mean, life's crashing down. Okay, it's easy to pray then. But other times, life's not, not it's, just, it's just difficult. Why is it so hard to pray? And if we want revival, isn't that what we need to be doing? We need to be praying. Isaac Singer, he, he once confessed, I only pray when I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble all the time. So I pray all the time. That's a good way of looking at it right there. I'm in trouble all the time. I need to be praying all the time. In verse 46, then he returned to the disciples. He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So Jesus, he, 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 he had awakened the disciples three times, and now there was no more time. Judas had arrived, and he wasn't by himself. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the, and one of the twelve, arrived with him. Um, arrived with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent, with, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So here, here's Judas, and here's this, uh, this large crowd with swords and with clubs. It says in John chapter 18, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. And now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. 
And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen, he went out and he asked them, who is it that you want? After, after praying in the garden, in anguish, overwhelmed by sorrow, now he's prepared. And now he has the resolve. And now he goes to the place that he knew Judas would know to be at. He's, he's trying to make it as easy as possible for these guys because he didn't want them to mess this up. So he goes to where he knows Judas is going to be. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He goes to the mob. There's a detachment of soldiers with weapons and with torches. And he asks them, who is it that you want? And they say, we want Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Okay, and they all fall down. That's what it says. They, they all fell down because they don't want I am. They want Jesus of Nazareth. They want somebody that can control, somebody that can manipulate. They, they don't want I am. I just always thought that was an awesome verse right there. They all fall down. I want you to, to look at Judas here with me for a moment. I, I still want to do a whole sermon on Judas. So I just want to mention him right now. But in verse 48, it says, Now the betrayer had arranged a, a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man, is the man. arrest him. And going at once, Jesus, uh, to, to Jesus, Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. And then the man stepped forward and seized Jesus. The, the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. But in verse 50, Jesus calls him friend. You notice that here Judas is betraying Jesus, and Jesus calls him friend, which I believe was a very sincere, loving response to Judas. Even in this moment, Jesus still sees him as friend. I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic here. I don't... Um, I don't think these are words of malice or hate. And once again, I would ask, can, can you do that? Can you do this? And, and, and please know that if you die and go to hell, it won't be because Jesus stopped loving you. The last, the last voice on earth that you will ever hear, if you're listening, is his voice saying you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. There's still hope. Verse 50, then the, the men stepped forward, they seized Jesus, and they arrested him. In verse 51, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We talked a little bit about this last week. Um, Matthew doesn't tell us who it is, but we know who it is, right? John tells us who it is. We could have figured it out if John didn't tell us. We, we knew we, this is Peter. Peter does this. This is what Peter does, right? Um, Matthew 18, verse 10. This, uh, no, this is John, John 18, verse 10. Um, John says this. He says, Then Simon Peter, who had had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. We're going to talk about Malchus in a minute. But right now, just focus on Peter. Peter cuts off the ear of the, of the servant of the high priest. Not a servant of the high priest, but the servant of the high priest is what it says. And Peter thinks he's one of the good guys, not realizing there are no good guys here. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus to die on that cross. I think most of us are guilty. We, we like to divide the world in, in two camps, you know, the bad people and us, Okay. We're all bad people. We're all sinners. 
who need Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus says, put away your sword. Shall I, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And the message here is don't interfere with what God is doing. Don't get in the way. And, and you think about Peter. That night Peter was unprepared because he fell asleep in the garden instead of praying in the garden like he should have been doing. He brought the wrong weapon. He brought a sword when he should have brought the love of God. And he had the wrong focus. He's focusing on the mob instead of the will of God. Oh, how often we are so much like Peter. And his response was wrong because violence begets violence. And you and I as Christians, and we need, we need to hear this message a lot these days, we are called to take up our cross, not our sword. That's a hard message for people. Peter's response was wrong because he lacked faith. And I wrote down here, if the hope of the world rests on Peter's ability to defend and protect Jesus, we're all in trouble. I mean, it just it ain't going to work. Jesus says in, in uh, verse 52, put away, put, put, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will, will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It says 12 legions of angels. 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels. It only took four angels to destroy the earth in Revelation chapter 7. Only four. He could have called 72,000 angels. He could have probably called more than that. And angels, you think about this. Angels are associated with Jesus' birth. They are with him when he's being uh, tempted by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. They're at the resurrection. You know, we see angels, you know, when, when, the, when the tomb was empty, when the women went to the tomb, there, there was an angel there. Um, at, at his ascension, angels were there. Um, where you don't see angels is at the arrest and at the crucifixion. No angels. It's almost as if Jesus, as if God said, stand down. Stand down. And, and then the question, why? Why stand down? Because if angels had intervened, there would be no good news today. There would be no hope. There would be no salvation. Peter's response was wrong because Jesus had to die. There is no other way for man to be saved. Matthew 26, verse 54, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus didn't come to kill the opposition. He came to redeem the opposition. And Peter was just getting in the way of all that. He wasn't helping. He was making things worse. And Luke 22 tells us, that, and Luke is the only one who tells us this. This is interesting here. Uh, Jesus uh, when Jesus' followers saw what was, going, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with the swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off. Didn't wait for an answer, by the way. And, and Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. So Malchus's ear was cut off, and Jesus healed his ear. Um, Luke is the only one who tells us this. Um, and, and I've read this is the last recorded miracle of Jesus, the healing of Malchus's ear. And this last miracle Jesus performed was a, a healing of a man who is suffering as a result 
of God's foolish disciples taking out their swords. And, and, and one minister writes this. He, say, he says, I think that, that this probably is the most common, most often miracle of Jesus to this day. You see, Jesus' disciples, you and me, we love to pull out our sword of the Spirit and wield it around and sometimes, sometimes hurt other people in the name of defending Jesus Christ. And Jesus is still in the business of healing people that his foolish disciples hurt by wielding the sword of the Spirit. You know, here, I'll defend Jesus, and you cut, and, and I'll, I'll take care of you, Jesus, and, and you take that verse, take that verse, and slice, and cut, and, and, and what's he saying? He's, we, we think we're doing the kingdom of God a favor by de- de- defending Jesus and attacking his people, and so the body of Christ is bloodied up. We have noses over here and ears flopping over there because we use the Bible to cut people down. If that's how you use the Bible, if it's all about defending, 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 then put your sword away. If, you want to, if all you want to do is cut other people up, put it away. You're not using it right. Peter, put your sword away. You're about injuring people, not healing people. Can anybody relate to that? Is anybody guilty of this? And I'm thinking, if you are guilty of this, the good news is Jesus died for you too, okay? Yeah, he died for you. So we, we, we look at Judas, and we look at Peter, and then you look at Malchus, the servant of the high priest, the servant of the high priest, not a servant of the high priest, but the servant of the high priest. John's the only one who tells us his name. His name's Malchus. Do you think the servant of the high priest continued to serve the high priest after this? Don't know. Do you wonder if after Jesus healed his ear, he used that ear to listen to the words of Jesus? Don't know. Do you think that after this encounter with Jesus that his life must have been changed. And, and I would tell you, maybe the only reason we know his name is Malchus is because 50 years later when John writes his gospel, Malchus was one of the believers at that point. He was one of the disciples of Jesus at that point. I think that's probably the only way we know his name. He became a believer. John 18, verse 8, if you're looking for me, this is what Jesus says, then let these men go. After, after Peter had cut off a soldier's ear, Jesus says, let them go. And they did. And then Matthew 26, verse 56, then all the disciples deserted Jesus. And they fled. Just like Jesus said they would do. They all fled. You know, just, just that night in the upper room, they were arguing, arguing over who's the greatest. Like, who's the greatest deserter? Who's the fastest runner? What, what are they arguing about now? They all deserted Jesus Christ. And if you got your outline, turn to the back page. And let's look at Jesus. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That's a, maybe the biggest thing to get out of the message right here. We are faithless, but he is faithful, for he cannot disown himself. You look at his, his, his resolve Jesus, knowing all that would happen that night, he continued to go out and meet the people who were going to arrest him. He didn't resist. He healed one of the men who came to arrest him. One, you know, one of the people who, were, who was going to take him to trial, take him to the cross, Jesus heals this man. And he, he sought the protection of his disciples. His enemies were disarmed by his presence. 
It's almost as if Jesus had to arrest himself. You look at his resolve, you look at his faithfulness when his disciples were not faithful. When you and I are not faithful, Jesus continues to be faithful. Even when he's in anguish, even when he's in distress and sorrowful to the point of death, even when he knows all that was going to happen to him, he continued to be faithful. And you notice his love for Judas, who came to betray him, for Malchus, who came to arrest him, for the disciples, who he knew would desert them, and for you and I, who he knows has sinned against him and will continue to sin against him. And it tells us in the Bible, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice what Jesus did for you and me. And be amazed. This is the gospel we preach. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for me. He died for you. While we were faithless, he was faithful. And he still continues to be faithful. And by his wounds, we are healed.